You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast this month in association with RehabMyPatient.com and this is session 77. Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. I'm still Jack Chu. Huge thanks to show sponsor Rehab My Patient for their support in these challenging times. If you haven't already, check out why we're calling them the premium exercise prescription software, and that's for style, speed, and functionality. Try it for free by going to rehabmypatient.com forward slash physio matters for your free trial. Hope you're all as well as can be right now. I know it's been strange. It's uh, Some people are, are bored. Most people are stressed. Everyone's trying to adjust to these strange times. We've been busy trying to keep you guys going. We've done 10 podcasts in six weeks in order to support and entertain you through these mad and isolating times. Check out The Last Physio Matters with Scott Buxton on frailty. The Last Health Matters with Helen Liddell on opioids. The Last Patient Matters with 16-year-old Pavni Acharya. And five emergency podcasts covering the topics that you requested to help with COVID-related issues. This week, you've also had two live launch party streams to watch on Facebook. Two brilliant partnership projects that we've been working on. The first is MSK Reform's new patient information site, mskr.info, which is powered by RPRS Health. And our new subscription service for CPD called therapistlearning.com, or TLC for short. We've been working on this for a long time with our friends at Sports Injury Fix, and we're incredibly proud of it. There's a ridiculous amount of free CPD content online these days. And whilst I once thought that was my dream scenario, um, but the quality hasn't necessarily come for the ride as the quantity has increased. So with TLC, you get curated exclusive content from the biggest names in the industry with no cowboy salesmen, no stuffy, clinically distant academics. Go to therapistlearning.com to subscribe, or you can even dine a la carte from this month's content and then see what you think about the rest of it. This month's podcast is truly with one of my favourites. Rachel Chester is one of the loveliest and smartest people I've met in this industry. And she has a knack of translating the latest shoulder research and thinking in, in such a charming and accessible way. So I'm delighted to bring you subacromial pain syndrome with Rachel Chester. I'll see you at the other side. Delighted to be here today with Rachel Chester. This is a long-awaited podcast. We've been in talks about doing this for a while, and so I'm really pleased to be able to get this together. Uh, one of the leading shoulder specialists in the UK and increasing reputation elsewhere as well, particularly important work that she did a few years ago as part of her PhD and really knitted together the shoulder a body part in which we sometimes seldom represent the uh, biopsychosocial model within it. And her work really helped us to understand it as a... As a a condition and a body part that we need to make sure we bring that together for. So she's going to tell us a lot more about that, of course, um, but we're really pleased to get her on the show and to talk all things subacromial pain. So we wanted to try and make sure that we bring the whole context around what that is, what it means, how to treat it, the management of it, but then also how that then interfaces with Rachel's work and some of these psychosocial considerations and communication-based considerations for that so thank you so much for coming on the show Rachel would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners in terms of your background um hi and first of all thanks for inviting me Jack I'm really looking forward to this um 
I'm a lecturer in physiotherapy at the University of East Anglia with a teaching and a research load. Um, I also work privately at the University Sports Park. Um, I've worked clinically for about 30 years. The last 20 years I've worked part-time so that I can keep my lectureship going as well. Um, my most recent NHS post was as a clinical physiotherapy specialist at the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital um, with a particular interest in the upper limb. Um, but I also just did some secondment in which um, I did triage for all sorts of musculoskeletal problems in primary care. Um, in terms of my training, I qualified in 87 from the Leeds School of Physiotherapy and completed my MSc and MACP in 1999. Um, and then in 2001, I was in, in a successful application as um, in terms of a, an IHR clinical doctoral research fellowship. Um, this was part time because I wanted to keep clinical. Um, but it was absolutely brilliant. I so enjoyed it. It was probably the highlight of my career in terms of um, it funded not only my PhD study, but it also funded courses, both clinical academic and also visits to different shoulder units. Um, which I was really able to see the cutting edge of research applied to practice and also to meet some great practitioners and look at really the artistry of physiotherapy as well. Um, and I have so much to thank them for because there's so many people that have contributed to both my PhD, but also my ability to disseminate it and think of new ideas about how to apply it since as well. But great shoulder community out there. Absolutely. Now, that, that brings me to wondering, what was it about, say, MSK more generally that, that uh, brought you, you know, that tempted you into that specialty, but then also more specifically, why the shoulder? I thought you might ask that. And I don't actually know. I have been thinking about it. But ever since I was 15, um, I knew that I wanted to work in musculoskeletal, whether it was as a PE teacher or um, as a physiotherapist. I wasn't particularly good at team sports in terms of um, hand-eye coordination. So the PE didn't seem such a good idea. Um, but even then, I knew that um, I enjoyed musculoskeletal. And particularly, I think, with the shoulder, I've always enjoyed the complexity of the anatomy. And now we've got the complexity of the kinetic chain. I mean, even better. So uh, I think that's just, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed my rotations. But I always knew that I'd come back to musculoskeletal. One of the things that I, when I asked that question about when someone's specialised, particularly in a body part or a sort of style of practice, um, I ask that and, and it either goes one or two ways. People either say, I just love the simplicity of it or I love the complexity of it. And, <laughs> yeah. Inevitably, when they even say simplicity, what they're meaning is that they can sort of narrow the specialism but recognise their complexity within their area. Uh, but generally speaking, when it comes to the shoulder, it'd be, uh, it'd be really naive for anyone to suggest it, it's simple. It really does integrate all things upstream and downstream. And the increasing knowledge of, of what goes on sort of cognitively and, and, and all the other neural yeah. processes that goes on with regards to pain. So it, it really can be a, a nexus of everything, can't it? So no, that's really interesting. Now, one, one of the things we wanted to really talk about, this various different, almost, there were, there were too many podcasts we could do with Rachel Chester. And so one of the things that I really wanted to try to make sure that we did was, was visit a topic that our listeners have been asking us to visit for a while, which is to bring in uh, an overview of, of subacromial pain syndrome or call it what you will, which we'll talk about in a little while. Um, 
which is a really common pathology of the, of the shoulder that, that they're therefore interested in getting, our, getting an expert take on. But it's, all, it's also because it's a, a common pathology of the shoulder, it's also something that naturally your work applies so well to. And so we will then venture towards some of the more specifics of that research that you've described and the community of practice that you work within. But before we go there then, could we start by me saying what is subacromial pain syndrome? Um, my understanding is that it's pain arising from the subacromial region usually on elevation of the arm, whether that's through abduction or flexion, and often also um, on active external rotation. We, change, we tend to... Um, when it comes to subacromial pain syndrome, there's various different terminology that gets used for it, both across history and even right now. And so it often rages on as to what, what we should call it. Do you think it matters what we call it? I've given this a lot of thought, and... Where in the past I might have said not so. I think it does now because it informs really the dialogue that we have with the patient and how they interpret that diagnosis. So if we think about, for example, um, the label that we used to use, subacromial impingement syndrome, which um, implicates the structures between the inferior surface of the acromion and the superior surface of the head of the humerus in that they're perhaps being irritated or compressed due to lack of space within that area. That implies that really to, to reduce those symptoms, the area needs to be made larger, and so indicates that surgery is probably going to be necessary. And that's probably led to surgery on structures which aren't really causing the symptoms, because we now know that the shape of the acromion isn't associated with the patient's signs and symptoms. Um, and so, I think it's important not to use that terminology. Now, subacromial pain, I think is quite a nice term because really it just defines the area in which the patient's getting the symptoms. I guess what it doesn't do for patients who want an explanation is it doesn't identify the cause. And really, I suppose socially, particularly in today's society, people want an explanation for their symptoms an explanation that's culturally acceptable as well and and let's be honest sadly um, medically unexplained symptoms for example there is a stigma associated with those and so I think sometimes if patients have got something a little bit more tangible to hang on to it's perhaps more comfortable and that's where rotator cuff related shoulder pain can be also a useful adjunct to that again it doesn't have to mean that the rotator cuff has pathology it can just mean perhaps that um, it's an altered response to loading. And so I think it's important that we think about the labels that we use in terms of informing the dialogue with the patient and informing the pathways that they might choose to follow. I think that that's, the, that's a decent sort of compromise, isn't it, where we go regionally specific for the general, but then we recognise the limitations of that are when people would want to describe and discuss tissues, or they may have a tissue-based understanding of their symptoms through imaging or through previous explanation that put into context, we can explain the relevance to the rotator cuff tendons, the bursa and the bursal structures and, and the like. So 
that that is a that is a, a decent compromise, I would say. And I think that it will rage on in terms of the nomenclature as to what we do call it and, and whether that matters or not. But fundamentally, when we think about the history of understanding the condition, it is progress to move away from something that is sort of a narrow biomechanical and structural approach to something that is broader. Now, how broad becomes the big question. What do we think is now going on, we've talked about what we don't think is happening with regards to this purely biomechanical pinching that we kind of now know happens regardless of pathology, right? There's an increase in, in, a decrease in, 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 an increase in pressure, decrease in space that occurs regardless, and therefore it's not pathological mechanics. But we, rather than talking about what isn't happening or what we, mm-hmm. mistakes we've made in history, what is our understanding of what is happening in this condition? Again, I think we we need to respect that we're still um, theorising, we're still hypothesising on the festival mechanisms, just as Nia did back in 1972, in terms of the mechanism, biomechanical mechanisms, they seemed correct at the time. Um, now, I guess we're looking at, um, is it alterations in loading of the rotator cuff? And is that due to pathology of the rotator cuff itself, parts of the rotator cuff? Is it perhaps due to um, altered kinematics, altered um, recruitment, timing, strength of the muscles around the shoulder, whether it's the rotator cuff itself, whether it's the scapulothoracic muscles in terms of how they position the scapula? Is it perhaps related even to the wider kinetic change in terms of the strength of the lower limbs? We know, for example, that... um, I think it's 50% of the power that comes from perhaps throwing a ball or doing a tennis shot comes from power in the legs. And then about 30% of that really transferred through the core. So it could be wider things like that. But I think as well, we also need to look at the biopsychosocial implications as well. Is why has the patient got these symptoms now? Um, Why is the mechanosensitivity of the tissues within that subacromial region now? And that's where really it's hand it's useful to look at the whole lifestyle. And if I can just use some examples from my own clinical practice, um, I see a lot of sports scholars at the university. And particularly in October, a lot of them have got, you know, um, they've had flu from, um, you know, the first few weeks at, um, at university. And if we think about their lifestyle, some of them have taken time off their sports two or three weeks while they've got better. They've become deconditioned. Not only that, they no longer live in at home, eating the same sort of food. Um, they've got a different posture at the computer. Um, they've got the uncertainty in lots of areas in terms of exams, assessments. Um, their sleep is disturbed, perhaps having less sleep, more disturbed. Um, all these things will affect, if you like, their allostatic load, how they respond, not only their own, not only physically, emotionally, but also the body systems as well and their ability to, to, to recover and repair. And so I think it's worth looking at all those factors as well that might contribute to this changed or altered response in loading in the subacromal area. And so when we think about, because people want to sometimes, and I understand why, especially in a research context or when we're trying to almost under, understand this thoroughly, this temptation to stratify based on some of those categories and think about what is the biggest fish to fry in this instance. Yeah. Are you someone that feels like given the right amount of attention or the thoroughness of assessment, we can delineate these categories or is it that 
for you, this is part of the melting pot that makes that person. And therefore, to try and tease them out is a bit of a pointless exercise. I think that's a lovely way of putting it, actually. I am very much, <laughs> I say, on the, that it's a bit of a messy melting point right. and melting, melting pot. And that's really what I enjoy about it. Um, I don't think we can tease out some kind of psychological from the physical um, because we know that the physical will affect physiology, the psychological will affect physiology and so on. Mm. Um, and these are things affect multiple systems. And so what I do like is I think when we phrase it in this way, patients are really open to it as well. So I know that with a lot of my patients, we look at it, we look, sit down and we look at look what factors could have predisposed you to get this problem now. You've been doing this for years. Why now? And we can look at, well, I haven't been getting as much sleep. You know, well, that could affect your repair, you know, repairing the healing repair process. Um, you know, why do you think you're not getting as much sleep or I'm a bit worried about my exams, that sort of thing. So there's lots of different factors. That we, that we need to take into account and like you say we can't delineate them or categorize them really mm. no it's tempting as it is sometimes in, in a research sense or trying to enumerate things generally the, these things all intermingle so much that, that yeah that, that, that uh, it's all it's all part of the complexity that, that is the person that's presenting i think that that change in and I think that that's fairly typical, isn't it, to a lot of musculoskeletal presentations, but particularly when it comes to these tendon-related or tendon-associated, then the changes in load seems to be relevant or change in behaviour. And it's good that people are now increasingly recognising that that doesn't necessarily mean physical load. It doesn't mean the typical first gardening uh, first gardening weekend of, of the springtime, that the, the obvious change in behavioural load. But actually, it can also mean that the circumstances around that person's life has been disrupted. And for some reason, there's an underlying sensitivity that normal, that even if they hadn't changed their physical behaviours, it may be that their normal behaviours might irritate be that their, their structures or their system sufficiently to, to uh, create a problem that disrupts them. So I think that that, that on balance is, you know, is people sometimes worry that that is too broad or too vague, but it's honest, isn't it? It is a really hot, you know, that is the hottest take within our understanding in the literature right now. Oh, yeah, and I think we can still be really quite precise with it. So, you know, if somebody's getting pain on a particular function or a particular activity within their sport, for example, thinking about some of my patients, we can narrow it down in terms of what do you think could have affected this? Providing we've given that initial sort of guidance that it's a subacromial pain and it's changed sensitivity or changed response to load, Patients I've found generally are quite receptive because they've already we've we've looked at a label, if you like. We can then move on to the explanation. We've given provided a framework, if you like. Yeah, it sometimes surprises people as well as to in the sports a good example for it, but it could apply across non-sporty populations oh, yeah. as well, where people will sometimes when it when it gets teased out, they'll realise that this this pain at the at a certain part of the tennis serve, it sometimes does lay into their their the, the, how's your serve been going generally before this started hurting and, and, and there's often some underlying again by a psychosocial complexity that could come from the, the reasons as to why whereas historically we'd be thinking about exactly what are the intricate biomechanics that are going on at that point of a, of a serve that's sore whereas now we're kind of coming to realize that people will more willingly volunteer other variables um, if given the opportunity to so I think that's a, it's a really good point I wanted to ask you what you feel in terms of the research as well as your reasoning, what do you feel is the best way to diagnose subacromial pain? Well, I'd probably do, first of all, 
is want to eliminate serious SOS, a more serious contribution to the symptoms, you know, if it's fracture dislocation, um, or more serious sinister pathology, which we would get really from the subjective. And then I'd want to eliminate the spine. I say eliminate or look at the spine because POS often contributes um, to varying degrees in the neural tissues and then start to focus on the shoulder. And I just do still use the quite traditional Syriacs approach of trying to sort of look objectively um, if there's an inert or contractile element that I need to address. So, you know, active versus passive versus resisted, supplemented by lots of functional tests and things. But um, I guess what I usually want to do is, first of all, have they got some the subacromial pain, Where's the dis where is the pain? Is it on elevation, external rotation? Um, I'd want to eliminate a capsular restriction, that is um, restricted passive external rotation indicative of a frozen shoulder or osteoarthritis. Um, but apart from that, I'd probably want to focus on, is this on something that I want to address their pain, stiffness, weakness, apprehension, guarding or fear avoidance I'd probably want more of a guide of how I actually treat it and so I'd be looking at that from my Syriac type assessment I would use things some of the special tests but I wouldn't really call them special tests it would be used perhaps to put the patient in more functional positions if I had to search so for example if resisted it internal rotation from the history I expected to find that was painful and it wasn't and it wasn't on my testing in neutral, I might use Gerber's test that puts the hand behind the back. If that was the patient's functional problem, if you like, I might compare active, passive and resisted in that position, because then that would give me a target for my treatment. Um, also use shoulder symptom modification procedures as well, again, as a guide for treatment. I don't know if that's answered your question about diagnosis, no, Jack? Yeah, I think, no, it does. I, I think what I would wonder about with with what you're describing and and from what you just you know i think we all naturally integrate this into our reasoning don't we about what the behavior of the symptoms the behavior of the movement that we're observing as to whether or not we're looking at contractile versus non-contractile but i always find that that say something lower limb particularly ankle knee is something that you can almost get a patient to completely relax or, or as close to completely relax as possible in order to sort of really test sort of the contractile versus non-contractile tissues to try and work out what might be going on there. Whereas in the shoulder, it's something that, especially on a sore joint, you know, when, you, when you're trying to get some, you know, looking at active versus passive elevation, really, it's, it's something that uh, I wouldn't necessarily expect there to be a huge amount of difference in, in soreness, resisted maybe, but it's just something that generally the handling of that and, and trying to tease out the tissue specific variables from an objective assessment. That's where I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of how you would tease out any, any accuracy, or is it that you're just looking at the symptom response rather than the tissue response? Yeah, I'd say looking for symptom response really. So for example, if I can bring on your passive versus active, I agree entirely. It's so difficult with the shoulder. And I think often we diagnose um, a frozen shoulder inaccurately in terms of perhaps we, we, we interpret it as stiffness, but perhaps it's actually muscle guarding. Mm. 
mm. um, and had we perhaps laid the patient down or perhaps they'd have an anaesthetic, they would have had greater range of external rotation. And we're, thinking, we're seeing that from the literature. Mm. Um, and the same sort of thing, unless you're really quite accurate with your handling, it's quite easy to perhaps for the body to compensate and to look like they've got more external rotation than they have. Um, but in terms of looking for an actual tissue source, I think we can only really hypothesize and say that when we use your muscles or tendons, they're, sent, there's some, they're producing your pain. And so what can we do to alleviate that? Mm. Yeah, so you're looking at whether if you put them into positions that it's sore relative to them resisting a movement in that position and things like that. So you're just looking at, you're looking for, as you said, identifying areas to retest against for treatment. Yeah, and also to guide treatment. So, you know, if there is a difference between active and passive, is that due to weakness or is it due to pain inhibition or is it due to stiffness, which in fact might be muscle gardening, guarding, and how do I address those? I think what and so I still do, yeah, so I still do use them, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. You, you've mentioned the lack of specialness to the special tests and that's, uh, <laughs> that's useful for, for us to think about because when we think in diagnosis, sometimes that's the, that's the historical thing would be a, you know, teasing out variables through orthopedic special tests and or imaging so let's just talk about the imaging piece as to being what is the utility do you feel for imaging of the shoulder and do you feel that imaging in a traditional orthopedic model would be sufficient for a diagnosis i think imaging can be useful if we well very important if we suspect serious pathology as i mentioned previously fracture dislocation um or more sinister pathology um, but we do know that there's a very poor correlation between what we find on imaging, that sort of sound, MRI, X-ray, and the patient's signs and symptoms. And so I certainly would use imaging to diagnose where the patient's symptoms arose from. Um, Diagnostic ultrasound is particularly on vogue in many ways. And, and whilst... There are clinicians out there that, that would be agreeing with, with all the things we've said in this podcast and beyond about imaging. They still feel that given the right explanation to patients, it can still, and, and as long as they're informing their reasoning with it rather than it, their reasoning being dictated by it, it has a utility for both diagnosis and ongoing. Is that something that you've found that uh, is of, of value or do you sort of have any sort of hesitancy in that direction? I have some hesitancy in terms of the par correlation between imaging findings and um, signs and symptoms. And really, that there'll be so many um, positive imaging findings, whether it's rotator cuff tears, tendinopathy, osteoarthritis of the AC, joint slap lesions and so on. Um, there'll be so many of those in asymptomatic patients. So I suppose I find it a little bit more challenging to understand the utility but um, I haven't been in that. I haven't had the opportunity to work with ultrasound and to see it being used in that way. So uh, I think I'd probably have to sit on the fence in that one. Yeah, I've, I've met. I've seen it done well and seen it done poorly. Yeah. Um, and I and I think that it's one of them things that I think we'll all come around to be more interested. Or well, not necessarily. We're all interested. I think more open to its utility if the people that are being that are using it sensibly. Are, if they win the argument internally and, uh, and yeah. then then that becomes something that I think we all become a bit more open to it on it's um 
it's it's an interesting an interesting variable really for for people but they need to really consider the fact that if we were all in a you know a bizarre culture in which we'd all had baseline MRs or baseline ultrasounds as asymptomatic people at whatever age and so you kind of understood people's circumstances and what their tissue characteristics might look like under under those scans to be able to do a comparison analysis on an injured person of which sometimes there are sporting circumstances at the high level where they kind of have that that understanding of the baseline characteristics so they can see the difference that might be therefore seen to be more relevant that is a different circumstance than Joe yeah. who's hurt his shoulder where you're then yes. making some assumptions based on what you're seeing on the scan and you've no idea that that's not something that they've had for five years as an asymptomatic person doing the same tasks and so whilst that still exists i think that that needs to be accounted for sensibly by by the scanners yeah yeah i agree you've certainly outlined a you know a useful role in terms of the elite athlete there mm. what, what i think then because you've mentioned that it blurs the lines really between when you're working on a an assessment as part of your diagnosis you then explain that through it then naturally merges with treatment direction and treatment so Let's let's think about that then. What do you think the research and your reasoning suggests is the best way to treat it? I suppose we've overwhelming evidence now in terms of strength and quality that exercise is effective for the management of subacromial shoulder pain. What we don't know is the dosage, the frequency, the duration, um, and so on. And so that makes it a little bit more challenging. Um, I think for me as well, what's important is adherence in terms of irrespective of the exercises. We know that probably about 50% of our patients don't do their exercises as prescribed at home. And that presents as big a challenge. So prescribing exercise isn't just about the intention of the exercise, but also thinking about a behaviour change technique as well, really, to how do we engage patients with them. And that's really where, in selecting the exercise, I like to think about evidence-based practice. Yes, we've got the research that shows we need some form of exercise. In terms of my expertise, I can look at, as a physiotherapist, is it strength, weakness, you know, some sort of stability they need? Is it some sort of proprioception? Is it something that looking at more volitional movement, reducing guarding? Um, and from the patient's perspective, they're going to be the expert in terms of their potential barriers to exercise and engagement with physiotherapy, um, their personal goals. And so I think that's where shared decision making in terms of we bring all that to the forefront, we make a joint decision could be really valuable. Um, and so the exercises might be quite biomechanic based, if you like, looking at strength for weakness, or they might be more functionally based. And I think that's where the patient can really drive um, the exercises based on our expertise. What's your take on the sort of um, general gist? And I know that this will vary from patient to patient to some extent, but I wondered if you added a sort of an opinion more broadly on how specific or how general exercises should be for patients with subacromial pain. Uh, for sure, I'd, I think I'd take my lead from the the patient's goals um, and if for example there's a clear weakness that's stopping them to address those goals or if pain is a problem I'd want to target those in the treat 
the selection of exercises. Um, now, that might mean exercises local to the shoulder, but on the whole, it would incorporate for me movement of additional body parts, thinking about the kinetic chain as well. So, for example, thinking about some of my deconditioned patients, perhaps who've had the freshest flu, um, we wouldn't go straight back to just the shoulder. And to be honest, often as well, I'm sure a lot of clinicians will, will see this as well. Often the shoulder is a bit too painful to give more specific exercises to. And that's where perhaps pipe um, work on the lower limbs. And actually, that's I'm just thinking about my athletes. They, they'll buy into that as well because we can give them quite hard exercises that work them hard, but at the same time, it's just putting a moderate or more lesser stress on the shoulder, if you like. Yeah. Um, and the same, I think, we're thinking about um, patients I've seen perhaps who are really in quite a lot of pain, but we want to get the shoulder moving. But if we can incorporate that with, you know, in combining it with lower limb exercises, even simple sit to stand, you know, or use a modified squat when reaching up, you're doing elevation. Um, I think that can make it a lot more functional and perhaps really to as well highlight to the patient the role of the whole body in the movement, if you like. Yeah, I think as well when it comes to the phases of of how you can try to offer a relative offload to a particular movement and integrating the sort of core and lower limb to do that, to to distribute those forces differently, I think is is always a great move. When it comes to, because we don't know enough about dosage yet with regards to this, that's where I end up in a, in a tricky spot sometimes where if you think about someone who's got a problem with, say, external rotation, let's just stereotype them as yeah. a tennis player with a, a problem with, with backhand and, and that classic external rotation through tendinopathy, then loading them into a degree of abduction and then getting them to do some resisted external rotation work with a the TheraBand. There's some, some people would make a case for being quite targeted as to where that's sore and trying to get them to dose that appropriately to them. And then there's others that would say that, you know, getting a, a, a lighter TheraBand and doing that through a broad movement where they're almost touching the floor and then pulling all the way through a movement. Um, in that instance, I think that because we don't know a lot about dosage, there could be a good case to be made for both those exercises or one or the other of those exercises. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Do you, do you think at the moment that sort, that sort of research or any of the sort of thinking based on mechanisms, et cetera, leans you towards one or the other or both of those? I'm not sure that the research does, to be honest. Um, I would say as well, I mean, clinically, I tend to use both. Um, and it might be that we do want to target specific tissues otherwise the patient might be compensating so much that you actually don't load those tissues at all because they're concentrating on the other areas so that's where target and you might ask actually wanting to be work on proprioception there and perhaps recruiting around there which actually perhaps the more global exercise tends to I suppose hide if you like strategies that we don't particularly want so that's where it can be quite useful um, but at the same time, in terms of actually giving a functional exercise, which actually looks at the movement patterns they'll be using on court, if you like, that could be more useful. So I think really both have their place. Yeah, I think as well. It's, that is almost the way to err on the side of caution for now, isn't it, until we get more information and more, more data. Um, I don't, yeah, I, there are... do you think, yeah, and I wonder if we ever will get you know I wonder if sometimes yeah. it's like the holy grail in it i wonder if we'll actually find um 
are true because there's so many factors that are in it's not just um the biomechanical factors it's you know everything else that's going on as well the racket size um you know where they're playing which sort of turf they're playing there's so many different factors how well they're feeling and so um yeah and also we're, we're as a means of making those those points and trying to think more intricacy about dosage and, and specifics of exercise prescription we naturally do lean towards a sporty example in which someone's got a particular part of range that's sore or a particular moment and movement and i think the reason we do that is even though they're not they are fairly typical and common but not as common as say joe blogs tendinopathy style picture from gardening etc or someone who's got an emergent pathology that doesn't have a a a story that lends itself to understanding any sort of causal moment they're the really typical ones and they end up being in a situation where we we wouldn't be able to be that specific if we tried in terms of them actually trying to work towards functional mechanics and instead you end up needing to 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 broadly look at their expectation function goals as to what they want to be able to do what they can and can't do at that moment in time and i think that that's what makes us naturally a bit more more general in that regard um, yeah i think go on. we can always work as well i mean that's why it's nice with those patients just trying to think of some examples is actually working with them i quite like exploring the exercises with them so perhaps you know i'm thinking about once i have actually given them quite specific exercises and then put it in context in terms of their their function whether that's in the gardening whether it's digging whether it's using prunes whether it's putting the hedge or whatever and um and i think it's quite nice as well the patients can see actually i've got this either of these there's various adaptations of these exercises i'm going to work on this two or three days a week i'm going to work on this a couple of days a week this is how i'm going to progress and i think it's really nice to see patients as problem solvers with ourselves in terms of the exercise um, as opposed to just prescribing some which then they don't know what to do if they get a regression or if they um, get a flare up um, or if they need to progress whereas if they've had some sort of reasoning with us and we've we've articulated our reasoning um, the patients can then adapt accordingly. Yeah one of the things that I wanted to ask your opinion on as well and it's not a it's not the way I'm framing this question, it almost sounds like these two ideas are totally oppositional and they are definitely not. But just for the sake of me trying to, to, to create an almost a, a two different paradigms, one being that, that Jeremy Lewis created a, a system with three symptom modification procedures in which the general suggestion was that you're trying to work around something as a means of conditioning without provoking and so you're modifying around symptoms so that 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 movement is at least less provocative or not provocative to their symptoms as a means of sort of bathing it in movement and function and then chris littlewood did something more recently that that sort of it, it totally flips that in a sense that you find and poke into the painful movement even though you're, you're doing something that's quite uh, just just you're, you're identifying what's painful and then you're finding a dosage that's tolerable and then sort of in, in your self-trial and then it's an exposure-based model that's more non-specific and so whilst as i say there's ways in which those things can be integrated but i wonder where you see that you find yourself sitting between just exposure-based sort of find what's painful and poke into it versus the more let's say uh, uh, calculate workarounds that, that jeremy had described I think 
I quite liked Chris's research, actually. When it came out, um, I found it quite exciting that we could push into pain and it wouldn't cause a flare-up. Um, I found it more challenging clinically to, um, to use it with my patients. Um, not to say that it hasn't sometimes, but I tend to... I think a lot of my patients come with pain as a dominant feature. And often when I'm poking into it, can make it worse so I quite like the old McKenzie sort of approach whereas what happens with repeated testing if it tends to resolve the symptoms or it increases the range of movement at the same amount of pain that might be useful but for patients that it keeps that it exacerbates the pain I wouldn't choose to select it um, and often I think when pain's more dominant and if I can modify that pain using some of the techniques that Jeremy's um, introduced um, I would tend to opt for those that allowed the patient to do their functional movement pain-free or have a greater range of movement um, mm. so I would tend to then go for you know pain modification techniques. Yeah and I suppose a big, uh, a big feature that leans us one way or the other on that particular uh, line would be patient's comprehension of, of, of why something hurts or, or how comfortable they are within, within that pain or how it's affecting them or what other context there is around surrounding it. Uh, you know, how it's, uh, if, if it starts to hurt and we're giving them exercises that hurt more and they associate that with the bad night's sleep they've just had or the continued bad night's sleep they've had all week, then sometimes that association can just ramp that up. Whereas in other circumstances, if they are quite confident that they, they don't associate this pain as being anything that's got any sort of major uh, psychosocial baggage or that they don't necessarily associate it with say say damage or injury and they've been e easier to reassure in that direction maybe that an exposure based model for them might might be more appropriate and i think clinically yeah. as you say it's on all of these things yeah i wish i wish that in practice it, it went the way of the of the papers and um, in in both instances i find that that yeah it's usually that we we see the patients that that's, that, that sort of don't meet all the perfect inclusion criteria, these sorts of things, do we? Sometimes in clinic, there's, there's somewhere in between and we've got to try and work it out ourselves. Yeah, and I, I really like um, Chris Littlewood's idea about the, the exposure. Um, and I think he does identify quite clearly that, I don't think it should be say four out of 10, they shouldn't go above four out of 10 and the pain shouldn't last, increase pain more than 24 hours. And, you know, do buy into that. I think it's just really assessing for which patients it's going to be appropriate and for which patients you might have to go into pain to actually progress. Mm. Um, but there's lots of patients as well who aren't in persistent pain, if you like, who haven't got chronic pain, for whom the shoulder symptom modification techniques might be really useful. Um, or even if they're in persistent pain, if there's a way of showing that they can do that movement comfortably, I think they both have got the pros and cons. Do you think, on on a broad sense, the when it comes to general treatment of the of the shoulder by MSK physios, both let's say not just shoulder, sorry, but shoulder, uh, uh, subacromial shoulder pain, as we're talking about it, do you think that that we have a majority majority get underdosed or overdosed? I think 
I think about my own experience, that's all I could go on really, is I used to work um, at the Norfolk and Norwich seeing patients who had been referred for a surgical opinion. Mm. But from our paper triage, it looked like, you know, that wasn't really next in the pathway. And so when I saw these patients, a lot of them had already had physio, not all, sadly, they were for sure. With over shoulder decompression but a lot hadn't um but of those that had sometimes they'd only had one or two sessions of physio and i think that's why i thought this was an underdose of physiotherapy if you like for this particular group of patients um in terms of they were being referred for a surgical opinion way before they'd had um enough physiotherapy and a lot of them as well not knowing i was a physiotherapist even though i don't have my bad they would tell me that um they oh, they say physiotherapy, oh, I've just got some exercises, they're not going to help, are they? And so, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of education to be done in that area, really. Mm. But um, yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of underdosage in that, in my experience in that aspect. Mm. And perhaps yeah, a little bit too quick to go to for a surgical opinion. Okay, no, that's really interesting. Now We've, we've talked about diagnosis treatment. I just want to make sure we do a little bit on general management of it. It's something seen as being a bit of a recalcitrant problem. It can it can wax and wane um, in various for various reasons, and we've kind of touched on some of them. In terms of the ongoing care, say someone's managed to, to say they're eighty percent better or they've fully resolved their symptoms, they're very happy with the the, the, the care that they've had. What sort of advice or guidance are you giving someone at that point? And also, how do you see this as being something that is a condition that gets managed? Or does it even need any sort of management advice ongoing once someone's recovered from an episode of it? I think that's a good, a good point. because We can't always get patients. And lots of our patients don't get 100% better, do they? Um, 80% is quite nice sometimes, don't you think? <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah certainly provide I think it's really given them trying to facilitate that self-efficacy that confidence that they're able to manage this should they have a flare-up in the future um you know that we were able to identify um potential explanations if you like of when they had a flare-up things that might make the area or make the, the pain reoccur um and how to manage that and perhaps really a, a reassurance that this might be normal some sort of flare-up might be normal mm. um, and really have provided them with some sort of mastery in their current um, exercise program or management program so that they feel confident reapplying that and I think more than anything really explaining that hurt doesn't mean harm and that they're safe and that they're not going to do further damage yeah i think that, that then those those broad things are kind of a bit of a catch-all aren't they for us to to be able yeah. to show them and it's not as if we've got strong evidence to suggest of a, of a time frame or sometimes historically people would say if you don't keep up with this 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 and this then i'll see you in six months because it's inevitably going to get worse we've certainly not seen the epidemiology emerge that can tell us that we we should be giving those sorts of scare, scare, sorry scare stories out no i think just i know we'll talk about a little bit later but um, one of the main findings of our review of our um, research was that pain self-efficacy is one of the biggest predictors of a better outcome six months later. And pain self, that's really the patient's confidence in their ability to manage their life, if you like, 
very specific tasks that are important to them, um, despite their shoulder pain. And if we can instill or facilitate that in patients, I think it helps build that resilience and that, I suppose, confidence in the strategies they've got to manage any persistent pain. I think we. I think it's smart for us to go there now, actually, Rachel, to try and talk a little bit about that because it was, for me anyway, a bit of a show-stopping conclusion, really, when it was when it was published, and it still puts me on my heels sometimes when I yeah. get lost in the weeds sometimes, either with a patient or a set of patients. So you think about how you're managing this condition, and it, it, your research is a great leveler for me when I remember and reflect on what the core. Um, variables were that influenced symptoms ongoing so could could you just give us a bit of an overview of what that work was and then we'll talk about those conclusions and what they mean well what we wanted to find out was as physiotherapists why do some patients respond to physiotherapy and some patients continue to have persistent pain and this is for all types of shoulder pain not just subacromial pain Um, But we didn't include those with fractures, dislocations, or sinister, obviously, or systemic pathology. Uh, What we wanted to do was to identify which of the baseline factors that we measure at that first physiotherapy appointment are associated with the outcome six months later. So what we did via a questionnaire and via the physiotherapists taking part is we collected baseline measures on 71 different factors. These were lifestyle factors, demographics, work, um, general health, and also lots from the subjective and objective examination. And then what we did was we looked at their association with the outcome in physiotherapy six months later. And that outcome was measured by the shoulder pain and disability index and the quick dash. Um, And what we found Um, was that of the 71 factors, there was about 20 of them that were associated with outcome in our multivariable analysis. Um, What we wanted to do for the paper that we produced in 2016 is we just wanted to to outline those that were consistently associated with outcome for six weeks and six months and Mm. for all our statistical models. And for those, there was... um, Now, what were they? Baseline pain and disability was the primary one, as you'd expect. Baseline pain and disability predicts six-month outcome. Also, which was a surprise, big time a surprise, the next um, one was patient expectation. So patients who expect to recover are much improved, did much better than those who expected no change or only slight improvement. Um, I can talk about how we measured that a little bit later on, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing we found was that um, pain self-efficacy, we measured this using an established questionnaire, was associated with outcome. Pain self-efficacy, it's the patient's, um, oh, how would you describe it? It's their confidence in their ability to complete tasks despite, in this context, shoulder pain. And it really gives us an idea of how persistent the patient will be um, to overcome the challenges and um, provide, look at strategies as well, develop strategies for overcoming those challenges. So that's why it could be important. Um, So we've got baseline pain and disability, patient expectation, pain self-efficacy, and also pain severity at rest. 
which is probably not a surprise that, you know, the more severe the pain at rest, the worse the outcome six months later. There were additional, a number of additional factors as well, but those were the four that were really quite consistent amongst all our different models. One of the things that I've found interesting over the years since that was published, and as I say, it was something that uh, I was fortunate to be privy to fairly early, and so it's been, it was able to influence my thinking and practice early, meant that it's something that I've then discussed and debated with people over the years, but been surprised that sometimes it being waved in my face is a counterpoint to some of the things I've said. So it's the interpretation of it has been varied, as you'd expect in some ways. But one of the ways in which I've, I've encountered it, which is where someone's had a very different reading of its conclusions to me, is that there's been this inference that self-efficacy and the um, general expectation piece infers a psychological optimism is the core variable really and therefore everything else matters very very little and almost these these people that are a bit nihilistic about the style of care that's delivered because everything's just fed forward from expectation as well as self-efficacy and fundamentally if we can't tinker with those or we don't assess those thoroughly then it doesn't matter so people have almost fired that back when i've been suggesting that, that instead, this work for me informs the complexity, the, the, you know, the holistic approach, the, the need for us to make sure we assess and tease out those variables. Um, and I've been, I've been sometimes surprised by, by that, less so these days because it's happened enough times. But for you as the author on that piece, I wondered what, what you've observed in terms of the variety of different interpretations of that work and how, how you see this. Do you see it as being a, a suggestion of, of a, a, it being but that's fundamentally the side that this narrow psychology of it is the relevant variable or is that simply is this work for us to integrate that within a broader model and that that, that, that the psychology isn't necessarily always primary yeah i think it's a good question because i can see how that could be interpreted from the from the um, literature especially the title we use in a short abstract you can't always put those nuances into that right. um so I think what it has highlighted is that psychological factors are important for everyone. That's like you say, it's the complexity of being a human being, Um, but they aren't always barriers. Um, And so, for example, our research showed that patients who expected to complete recover had a better outcome than those even expected to much improve. Those aren't yellow flags. It's, you know, just that, you know, that's even on the positive aspect, but also I think, it just—it was just fact, looking at factors that were associated with outcome. It's, say, it's not saying that these are the only factors that are important. And in fact, our predictors—they only accounted for now. I'm trying to think between thirty and fifty percent of the variance in outcome. So there's lots of different factors that we have actually no idea about. Yeah. Um, so, and in addition, I suppose what we need to be aware of is that. Objective findings, for example, weakness, pain, um, apprehension, they may well be important in other, um, in other populations. And I say this as a hypothesis now, but if you think about it, as physiotherapists, if we see that a patient has a weakness, we treat it. And so it may well be that perhaps in cons- in a in a um, pathway that didn't involve physiotherapy these would be really important predictors of pain of, of ongoing pain weakness apprehension and so and so but we modify these 
such that these are no longer a problem because we strengthen somebody who's got a weakness. We mobilise somebody who's stiff. And so whereas these factors may well have been prognostic factors for the natural progression of shoulder pain, for the physiotherapy management, it might be that we modify these as prognostic factors. Now, I've got no evidence on which to base that. It's really going back, it's going to the clinical side of clinical reasoning and really suggesting a theoretical explanation mm. for the symptoms. Yeah. I don't, has that answered your question, Jan? No, it does. It does, absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was that if there's many interpretations of, of someone's work, it's always really valuable to hear what they felt that their take was from it um, and, and whether they've been surprised at any of the, of the sort of uh, ways in which it's been interpreted. Has there ever been anything that you've needed to feel that you wanted to counter where you felt you were being misrepresented or misunderstood? I think everybody's been really polite, actually. And I probably haven't been party to some of the criticisms. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. I think it is nice to clarify, really, that um, that this is really just looking at prognostic factors. It's not looking at what's important for treatment. It's saying that um, these factors are important in terms of predicting our outcome. So, for example, just as I mentioned with the um, weakness, if somebody has good pain self-efficacy, you're not going to give them exercises or you're not going to give them behavior change techniques to improve that self-efficacy. So it's already good. The same way as somebody who was strong, you wouldn't give them exercises to strengthen or somebody was already very mobile. You wouldn't give them mobility exercises. You'd concentrate on something, something else. And it's the same really in terms of somebody who's got really, they might have really positive psychological factors that are associated with a really good outcome. And so sort of, yeah, consolidate those, um, but perhaps work on area on other areas. And I think one of the reasons that the pain self-efficacy could have been associated with outcome is at the moment as physiotherapists, perhaps it's not been a priority of our treatment. And perhaps if we develop the same skills in terms of our behavior change interventions, in terms of how we um, can improve self-efficacy, it may be that in future studies, this isn't um, a prognostic factor either. Mm, no, it would be interesting to see how other things went. And then, as you mentioned, you know, in anything scientifically, we've got to try and anticipate what how this might map on to other population sets in other trials, replicability, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, we don't want to draw too many uh, deep conclusions and we want to keep ourselves open to being agile when new data emerges. So that's no, a really, really good point. So when it comes to how we can understand both the condition that we were speaking about today subacromial pain as well as your research and how the factors affecting symptomology what are the factors that are definitely worth mentioning at this point i think from our research um we found not only with we talked about pain self-efficacy expectation um and um, pain severity at rest has been um associated with outcome but we also found similar to the low back pain literature that in patients' employment status was important. And this has a huge effect on the magnitude um, of outcome. So for example, patients who were unemployed, poid or made, made redundant, um, had a significantly poorer outcome. Um, and that would mirror the findings that we're finding for low back pain. Um, we also found um, that patients who had had previous surgery elsewhere, 
this kept coming up actually as a prior prognostic factor, particularly at six months. Um, but any comorbidity um, was associated with a poorer outcome. And that again can sort of link to what I've mentioned previously about our students at Freshers Week, if you like, is that that's going to affect really physiologically. Um, it's going to affect the homeostasis, the different systems, and the ability to um, for recovery and repair. But it's also going to affect um, the pain, pain sensitivity as well, and central mechanisms as well. So, you know, hypothesizing there's lots of different methods by which or mechanisms by which that might affect outcome. So these are really important, those comorbidities. And again, that seems to be reflecting the literature for prognostic factors for low back pain. Um, Thinking about what else we found, we also found um, that patients who didn't partake in any form of exercise, um, compared with those who did moderate exercise, had a much poorer outcome. And there's quite a number of our patients um, who didn't partake in any physical exercise at all, not even walking five or ten minutes um, a month, which is in line really with the World Health Organization and the um the findings for the UK in terms of um, the amount of exercise that people generally do. And that was associated with a poorer outcome, which I guess isn't a surprise given that, you know, physical therapy involves exercises. Um, we also found that duration of symptoms, longer duration symptoms, was a part associated with a poorer outcome at six months, but not six weeks. That was a surprise. I expected to find that at six weeks. Um, and as well, there were some objective examination findings that were associated with outcome. They just weren't very consistent. So, for example, um, elevation of the shoulder, limited elevation of the shoulder, whether that's through abduction or flexion. And um, also a difference between active and passive abduction was um, a predictor. I think it was at six weeks. More consistently at six months, um, Jeremy Lewis's shoulder symptom modification, specifically just the one um, facilitation of the scapula around the chest wall during um, shoulder elevation, was associated. If it was a positive response, i.e., reduction in pain or increase in range of movement, that was associated with a better outcome. Um, I have to say, we we did um, we didn't do it quite pure to Jeremy's documented um, suggestions. Um, it was very new at the time using that, it was 2011. So physiotherapists could adapt it for their particular patient, but that was associated with outcome. I know it's speculative, but what do you think that that indicates really? Do you think that's more that patients that have got almost malleable symptoms in a sense that there's something that we can do to sort of alter something? Obviously, there's lots of things that that, that, that test does um, in terms of uh, that aren't purely biomechanical, of course, but the laying of hands, meaning that there's something that, that's a patient being exposed to something hurting and then something hurting less with assistance. Do you think it's as general as that? Or do you think it's actually that that test in, in particular um, indicates something more? I really don't think we know. Um, I think there's loads of mechanisms um, from loads of different um, from loads of different areas. Like you say, it might be biomechanically that we're offloading sensitized tissues. It might be that we're just showing the patient we're breaking that feedback loop in terms of we're showing them that it can move without pain. Um, it might be that we're facilitating some sort of self-efficacy. It might be showing that it's safe. We're taking away that um, that sense of threat. 
Um, I think there's lots and lots, and just for the power of touch, I think we can only hypothesise at the moment. But I suspect, mm. like you say, Jack, it's going to be really multifactorial. Yeah, huge rich bag, but it is uh, it is interesting to make sure we take that zoomed in analysis as well as the broader stuff as well. So no, I think I'm glad we've glad we've touched on that. Um, in terms of when we think about the way in which this conversation's sort of taken us through a particular condition, but also then explain the relevance of your research to it. I wondered if we could just go into sort of take home messages and what your top tips are for clinicians that are in practice on the shop floor, treating, treating patients of various different ages with this condition and, and shoulder pain generally, even as to say, what, what do you feel are the most important take home messages for you for improving practice? Um, I think first of all, in terms of making a prognosis, don't rely on your hunch. I was really surprised that our research didn't show that physiotherapists, um, I suppose, um, expectation of recovery. The, patient, the physiotherapists were asked to um, state their expectation of recovery from the physio, um, for the patient. And that wasn't associated on the whole with outcome. Um, and so I'd say, first of all, don't go on your hunch. It was a surprise to me. <laughs> that our hunch wasn't accurate. Um, and so look at these different factors, assess them. Now, there's various strategies that we could use to assess, for example, expectation and self-efficacy. Um, for those who are uncomfortable about asking directly about them, and sometimes it can feel very uncomfortable, perhaps consider using questionnaires like the pain self-efficacy questionnaire, two items, on the Eurebro questionnaire, but I would suggest that rather than use those questionnaires to get a score, to see if the patient has psychological barriers, I would use it in terms of looking at each of the different questions or items and think, ah, looks like this looks like this could be a barrier. I'm going to use it as a starter for my conversation with the patient about what might be a problem or concern for them. Um, secondly, um, we can ask them directly. And I think this is where the GPs use this um, analogy of ICE. So they ask the patient, what ideas have they got that could be causing the problem? Um, what are their concerns and what are their expectations of treatment? And I love that, actually. Um, it's really easy. It's open. And I think it's put in a, a lovely, gentle way. But the same thing, very, it's very direct. I would say if we're using this technique, use it with some sensitivity. So, for example, if the patient then does express concerns, make sure that we respond appropriately in terms of with empathy and validate their, what they've said as well. Um, thirdly, um, don't throw out the objective. Remember that this is just looking at... Um, prognostic factors it doesn't mean the objective isn't important we've talked previously not related to my research but um, the special tests can't compress or stretch a tissue they aren't discriminatory in terms of making a diagnosis um, but you know use your objective to I suppose inform your expertise in terms of helping the patient make a decision about their exercises um, so you can gather loads of information that's still really important, you know, in terms of stability, where it's safe to move and so on. Um, I mean, that within the safe zone. Sorry, I'm digressing to instability there, but um, you get the idea. Um, sure. And then also in terms of the patients who do have lower pain self-efficacy, 
And remember this needs to be specific to their goals or the tasks or perhaps your exercises. Remember that pain self-efficacy is very specific. It's, it's not a generalized concept. Um, make sure that you ask specifically about it and related to their goals. So for example, if they've got problems, they're worried about going back and cutting the hedge. You know, I might say, it sounds like you're not so confident about going back and cutting the hedge. No, I'm not. What is it? Is, you know, does it feel do not feel strong enough? It doesn't feel mobile enough. It doesn't feel flexible enough. So you can really be quite specific in terms of tuning your psychological and your objective findings together. Um, so you can see there I've amalgamated the pain self-efficacy question with questions from my objectives so that together we can decide, ah, to improve your self-efficacy, it looks like we're going to have to do strengthening exercises and mobility exercises. Um, and in terms of pain self-efficacy, there's four strategies that are outlined in the literature the most that we could to address it the most important is mastery and that's really where you're showing the patient that they've they've got this if you like and so to achieve that the patient probably for example with their home exercises are doing a functional task they need to have done that and for it to be safe without the threat and they need to have experienced that so, for example, just telling them that they can do it or just giving them the exercises that they feel a little bit unconfident isn't going to work. You're going to have to watch them do it, provide accurate feedback, perhaps even video them doing it so that they know that they've done them. They've done them safely. They've done them correctly. And um, they know what to do if they have a drop, you know, if they have a flare up sort of thing. So that's quite important, I think, in helping self-efficacy for exercises, for example. Um, Again, for some patients, they really benefit from seeing other patients in some of predicaments in terms of self-efficacy, seeing other people work out strategies to overcome them. And that's where for some people, groups might be really useful. But just be wary of that because it doesn't work with some people and some people it might backfire. Um, and so one strategy certainly doesn't fit all. The other thing is, um, as physios, I think we're really good at persuading and are encouraging patients. Um, but just to be wary that for that to be effective for anything more than the short term, the literature suggests um, that it's got to be absolutely truthful and, and followed up by success. So, for example, if you say, oh, you'll be fine with your exercises, you'll be fine or you'll be fine going back to do that. The patient goes back and they're not fine. Um, it's not going to really build up that trust or that therapeutic alliance. So that's going to be something to work on. Um, so just think about how we use that and use it honestly and accurately if we're using that. And just be aware it's only quite a short-term effectiveness for most people. And also, I think as well, I went on a Petro Sullivan course a few months ago now, and I think what he did beautifully in terms of paint self-efficacy was address the emotional of physiological responses to doing what was previously a painful movement. So for example, if, if a patient's really quite fearful of moving or doing an exercise, if you can then do it with them in a safe environment and get them perhaps experience such they're not getting that increased heart rate, they're not getting that anxiety associated, they're getting a nice feeling, it's a pleasurable feeling, they're enjoying doing it, they're being successful. Um, I think that's a good way to do it in the department as well. I hope that's provided a few nuggets. I've probably provided quite a lot of nuggets there, but um, you know, just some examples really that can be handy. No, and really mixing up yeah absolutely no that's that's brilliant and, and certainly demonstrates the integration of what what your research provided to the evidence base as well as how that 
integrates to practice and that, that, that these things unfortunately even the best research isn't a roadmap it's it's definitely something that that can can give us some support but doesn't necessarily dictate as to where we have to go uh, we need to integrate that within clinical reasoning and make sure that we assess thoroughly and consider all the variables which is what your research has taught us is that this there's, there's more to this than say biomechanics is more to this than the a narrow sense of psychological assessment. You know, these things are all integrated, they're embodied. We need to move away from dualism and uh, especially for the shoulder, which can, compared to the spine was considered to be something more of a biomechanical structural entity. Uh, we've come to realize that actually much like most MSK pathologies and different body parts are affected by musculoskeletal pain. These things are complex in their nature. I uh, wondered how, what you might direct people to, any signposting you want to do, as well as how people can find you or your work. Um, in terms of my work, um, the UEA, if you look at Rachel Chester University of East Anglia, that will bring up my homepage. At, all staff have a page that outlines their research and their publications. Um, that would, if anybody wanted to read any, I think they'll be able to get a link there. Um, on Twitter, Rachel Chester, PT. Um, in terms of wanting to get involved in research that we're carrying out, it would be lovely to hear people who wanted to work with us. Because um, I'm currently working with a colleague, Helena Daniel, um, who's a physiotherapist at the Norfolk and Norwich, and also Felix Norton, a behavioural psychologist. And we're trying to develop a tool that will assist physiotherapists in real time um, to think about strategies or behavioural change techniques that might be appropriate for the patient in front of them. It's very much a tool that's designed to help the therapeutic alliance and patients and physiotherapists work together on some of those more sensitive issues. Um, and so we've got a website for that, which I can't remember the details of. But if they look at Rachel Chester PT, I'll make sure I'll put the link on for that. Um, in terms of research and teaching, uh, my email r.chester at uea.ac.uk and in terms of private practice rachelchester8 at gmail.com that's brilliant thank you very much and thank you so much for your time and all the hard work you're doing for all of us you know it's really important not just to do the work but to get it out there and to disseminate that and so it's, it's brilliant all the work that you're doing to try and make sure that these messages get integrated and, and used sensibly so thank you for all you're doing Oh, thank you. And thank you, Jack, for your interest and for your invitation too. It's been really lovely talking to you. Nice Take care. Cheers then. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's a wrap for session 77. Thanks so much to Rachel for her time. Absolutely brilliant episode. I asked her one more question. I said, what do we do well and what do we do poorly? when it comes to treating saps and we're putting that on therapistlearning.com as a bit of exclusive content really interesting answer she was really candid about her approach to that and really honest about how she analyzes these things and so uh, you can find that over at therapistlearning.com best way to think about this new platform that we've created think about all the content we've filmed over the years at various different shows all the bonus content that we have available as well as what we can do going forward to do patient case studies and uh, examples and demonstrations on video uh, from our gym at choose health as well especially with the people over at sif that can provide you know quality msk content that's that sort of crosses all the boundaries professionally um but the, the way i'm thinking about it is that even though at the moment you've got various different streaming services to listen to music 
you still want to put the radio on sometimes. You want someone to curate that for you. You want to sort of find something new, get a different angle on it, a different analysis. And especially this is going to be a real combination of what classically on the radio would be sort of music and talk radio. You're going to get that combination of different amounts of content as well as analysis from the best and brightest in the game. So go to therapistlearning.com. You will not be disappointed. And uh, especially if you move quickly, you'll get all sorts of free offers and things like that. Lots more coming from us including the newscast which is going to be coming soon especially across social media no better time to follow us on there facebook instagram twitter youtube all the rest of it all right thank you so much again for your time you've got lots to catch up on if you've not gobbled up all the rest of our content there's some crackers out there but above all else thank you all for your support and we will speak to you soon for more physio matters take care bye-bye you're listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing physio matters because physio matters. Bye for now.